Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the program, we'll hear how a small community college in Riverton has been doing big work to study the effects of climate change on one of Wyoming's largest glaciers. It's on its way to becoming essentially a, a rock glacier. State Superintendent of Public Instruction Jillian Balo joins us to discuss the state of education. Generally, all signs are, um, are pointing toward improvement. We'll hear about an important restoration in Grand Teton National Park, and we'll follow along with a team of scientists studying Laramie's raccoon population. It's 5.40 on August 21st, and we're trapping Davis Trap 1. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. More than a month after construction began on a controversial stretch of the Dakota Access Pipeline, the front line of the fight is filled with faces from Alaska to Florida. As Inside Energy's Amy Sisk reports, for many camped on the North Dakota prairie, the fight feels familiar. It's a short walk from the central fire where people converge to hear prayer and song to the place where the Sami set up camp. My dad brought a good tent. That's Tiwani. He points inside to their two beds, some boots, a space heater. Outside, it's a sea of people living just like them along the confluence of the Cannonball and Missouri Rivers. They're here for one reason. The water. Less than a mile north is the epicenter of the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's the spot where the line capable of carrying half of North Dakota's daily oil production would cross under the Missouri River, if construction is ever completed. Tawani and his dad Quiltman traveled 1,300 miles from Oregon to join the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in its fight to stop that construction. Tribal members here are concerned sacred sites have already been destroyed and a potential spill could poison the drinking water on the reservation downstream. Everything needs that water. Everything, all, all life. Quiltman grew up during a dispute over water used by his tribe in Oregon. In the 1950s, the Army Corps of Engineers dammed the Columbia River near his home on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation. For thousands of years, people fished the falls on that river, forming a community and economic hub. Tribes from the Great Plains traveled there to sell buffalo meat and hide. That was probably the biggest trading center in this country right there. But, Quiltman says, when the Corps dammed up the river... You know, it changed the lives of all of our people. Fast forward to today. His tribe's latest fight, once again, it's over water. The Oxbow Springs, north of that same reservation in Oregon. Nestle, the global food company, wants to bottle that water. It's the same fight. This one just called more attention. Indigenous people have a long history opposing energy development and infrastructure projects they say threaten their environment. Those fights, including the one today, raise questions about sovereignty, about tribes' rights to have a say in managing their land. Brian Cladisby is president of the National Congress of American Indians, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group for tribes' rights. He describes countless cases of rail lines, roads, sewer lines installed over tribes' objections. Uh, just about every tribe has horror stories of 
the government allowing uh, companies and corporations to uh, at will destroy uh, these sacred sites. From environmental problems in Alaska after the Exxon Valdez oil spill to coal mining on ancestral land, these stories are shared widely at the camps here in North Dakota. Johanna Holy Elkface sits near the central fire listening to music. She was born here on Standing Rock, but now lives in Denver. She tells me the story about her sister who lives on the Navajo Reservation in the southwestern United States. Dairy water looks horrible, though. It's like yellow clay. She's referring to the Gold King mine spill. Contractors working at the abandoned mine in Colorado last year unintentionally caused 3 million gallons of wastewater to leak into the nearby river, which then flowed through New Mexico and Utah. Last month, the Navajo Nation sued the Environmental Protection Agency over its response to the disaster. The EPA says it takes responsibility. Cyrus Norcross of the Navajo Nation is used to seeing tribes fight and ultimately lose. At first, he assumed Dakota access would be the same old story. But then, the protest. It kept getting bigger and bigger, and next thing you know, I was like, I think these guys might actually win. Earlier this month, three federal agencies announced they would block construction of the pipeline for now at the Missouri River crossing while re-examining their permitting decisions. There's talk that this is a turning point for indigenous people. Here's Cladisby with the National Congress of American Indians. We are showing uh, the world that this is not going to be business as usual going forward. The Dakota Access Pipeline developer, Energy Transfer Partners, said in a statement that concerns about the pipeline's impact on the local water supply are unfounded and that it was designed with, quote, tremendous safety factors. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk. For three years now, a few hardy souls at Central Wyoming College in Riverton have been making an expedition up to the Dinwoody Glacier in the Wind River Range to document how climate change is taking its toll on one of the state's largest glaciers. This year, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards made the track in with them. It's a hard 23-mile hike into the Dinwoody Glacier, and every step is a study in the powerful impact glaciers have had on these mountains in the last one and a half million years. This particular valley is actually really cool because you can see essentially vertical cliffs all the way down. There's no question where the glacier went and how it scoured out the sides of the mountain. That's our guide, University of Wyoming hydrologist Elizabeth Traver. This is her second year partnering with the Interdisciplinary Climate Change Expedition, or ICE. Her job? To teach students how to measure just how much water is melting off the glacier. And it's melting fast. In the last 50 years, about 34% of Dinwoody Glacier has washed away. Under a hot afternoon sun, all that glacial melt really rages, making creek crossings with heavy packs downright dangerous. Do this truly safely. One person on this side should take off a pack. So if someone falls in, you have a pack off, you can catch them. Day three, we round a corner, and there's Dinwoody, a glacially slow moving river of ice. 
And if you look at it, you can actually see like a current in it. It flows off the flank of Wyoming's highest mountain, Gannett Peak. Wyoming has the largest concentration of glaciers in the Rocky Mountains, 38 of them, and 25 are in the Wind Rivers. As it flows down, the glacier heaves up giant boulders as if bulldozed. Tucked among these boulders, we find a makeshift glacier research station, where 13 students and three professors are hard at work on several scientific studies to track the glacier's retreat. Unquestionably, this area is changing and is changing with haste. That's their leader, CWC environmental health instructor Jackie Clancher. Wiry and energetic, she's passionate about this glacier. She gestures wildly up at the splashes of black dirt and rock falling onto the glacier's fringe. This long finger is new to us this year. That dirt stream there is new to us, and that is new to us. She says as the ice melts, debris above falls off, and all that dirt speeds up melting because its dark color attracts heat. It's on its way to becoming essentially a, a rock glacier. Any layperson could come up here three years in a row and be stunned each year by the dramatic transformation. But it's not just all that dirt that's heating it up. All right, Jackie. Climbing. One of Clancher's former students, geography major Lane Tommy, takes me down into the glacier's moat. It's sort of like a castle's, but... Basically a glacier that is connected to a rock. And since this rock is so hot, it just melts away, you know, this separate area. And it creates this ditch-like area. A ditch about three stories deep, and right now, we're at the bottom of it. Today, Tommy is ice climbing up the wall of the moat to collect snow samples. He's looking for black carbon, microscopic flecks of exhaust from cars and factories that drift here from around the world. He says on a day like this, when the sun shines on the glacier... Those little black specks heat up and accelerate the melting process of the glacier. And that's why it's really important to figure out know where all this is coming from. And that's exactly what he's hoping these samples will tell him. After he's done, we slip and slide off the glacier to its toe. Here, melted ice filled with fine ground rock called glacial flour turns the water a milky turquoise. The creek is narrow here, a good spot for hydrology students to get a reading of just how much water is melting off the glacier. We want to have a benchmark so we can use this uh, and the next years as climate change increases the temperatures and increases the melting of the glaciers. That's CWC outdoor education sophomore Grace Hartman. She takes notes while another student stands in rubber waders in the middle of the icy creek with a flow meter. So it's a, a metal rod and has a sensor on the end where it can measure the velocity of the water. Hartman says the Dinwiddie Glacier provides a steady, predictable source of water for ranchers in the Wind River Valley below, including the reservation. In a way, it's a frozen reservoir, supplying them with water for crops and livestock year-round. But right now, that frozen reservoir is deflating like a balloon, and the ICE project found a way to track that loss of volume. Using pack horses, they actually hauled a 60-pound piece of equipment called a ground-penetrating radar up here. This GPR can measure the thickness of the ice by locating exactly where the bedrock is underneath. University of North Dakota student Lance D'Angeli is doing his thesis on the glacier. Now we have length, height, and width, so that way we can get a total volume of the glacier and see how that's really changed. 
In Wyoming, people have started to worry that climate will someday deplete the amount of water that goes to irrigators downstream. But ICE project leader Jackie Clancher says it goes way beyond Wyoming. She says sitting on the Continental Divide, Dinwiddie Glacier is the headwaters of the Missouri River. This is not Fremont County's water. This is not the Wind River Indian Reservation's water. This is not Wyoming water. This is the nation's water because it flows into the Missouri Water Resource Region. I think of that as I scoop up a water bottle full of melting glacier and drink deep. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. You can see then and now photos of Dinwoody Glacier at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. By the way, the ICE Project is also documenting new discoveries about year-round prehistoric villages in that glacier area. Melody Edwards will bring you that story next week on Open Spaces. When we come back, we'll have a visit from our Inside Energy team. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. For the poorest among us, paying every bill can be a struggle, including the power bill. Until now, solar power has not really been a go-to option for those at the bottom. That's despite the fact that solar has boomed nationwide and costs have fallen some 70%. But that's starting to change. Inside Energy's Dan Boyce explains. You learn how to drill? Woohoo! Today, Ed Fry is a builder. Uh, today I'm assembling main girder structures. For a large array of solar panels. Also today... And every other day, he's a retired firefighter medic on a tight, fixed income. Uh, mine comes from uh, from one source. It'll be Social Security. About 30 volunteers are working to put up these panels in the western Colorado town of Montrose. It's sort of like the solar version of a barn raising. Jeff Ackerman is the director of the Colorado Energy Office, which provided more than a million dollars to help build solar projects like this one for a half dozen rural electric co-ops. Specifically, these are community solar gardens, where users have a share of a large, centralized group of solar panels. And for these gardens, those users will exclusively be people with low incomes. Ackerman says a lot has been learned about helping the poor save on heating costs, say through weatherizing homes. When you move to the electric side of the homes of low-income folks, it's more challenging once you go beyond an efficient refrigerator or lighting. And so the idea here is to build something that will lock in affordable, long-term electricity for these folks. And it's much needed. Energy costs consume a much higher percentage of low-income salaries. Solar power could be a solution for that. That is, once the panels are paid for and installed. The Obama administration has made it a priority to help finance solar for the poor, It's through a new initiative which will provide loans and training assistance to build these projects through a number of federal agencies. But Colorado has already been a leader in this effort. That state grant that's building the solar garden here at the Delta Montrose Electric Association and the other rural co-ops is one of the first of its kind in the country. A solar nonprofit called Grid Alternatives was hired to actually build the gardens. We focus on, uh, wholly focus on low-income communities. Chuck Watkins. I'm the executive director of Grid Alternatives Colorado. Watkins says the Delta Montrose project is the largest low-income solar garden in the country. Once they're done drilling that in, it's the same thing. Mark Grid Alternatives workers are organizing the volunteer effort here. 
The nearly 600 panels at the site will offset the power bills of some 45 eligible low-income households. Our goal here is to, um, is to try to reach a 50% savings on a family's annual electric bill. For some people, it can be a lot more of a savings. And for those benefiting, Grid Alternatives makes them a deal. It's kind of like Habitat for Humanity. You can be a part, but you need to volunteer to help build the thing for a day. We do space them a little bit with the connections. Which gets us back to the retired firefighter, Ed Fry, assembling those girders. Every time that I go by this now, I can say, hey, you know what, I was part of that project. He doesn't really see it as volunteering. His contract says for the next five years, he'll be reaping the benefit of this solar garden. It should cut his electricity bill from $60 a month to about 20 So an extra 40 bucks is a make or break at the end of the month on a fixed income. For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce. In the 1930s, electric cooperatives brought electricity to the country's most far-flung communities. They transformed rural economies. And in western Colorado, one co-op is again trying to spur economic development, partly by generating more of their electricity locally. But it started a high-stake legal battle, pitting renewable energy advocates against traditional wholesale power providers. The case could help define the future of electricity generation in rural communities in Colorado, Wyoming, and elsewhere. Callie Carswell reports for Inside Energy. Outside Montrose, Colorado, Jim Hennigan and I are standing over the South Canal. It's a warm August afternoon and swallows dart across the water. We've created a little habitat. To my delight. <laughs> the canal delivers irrigation water from the Gunnison River to local farmers. But Hennigan isn't a farmer. He's an engineer with the Delta Montrose Electric Association, or DMEA, the local electric co-op. And he harvests something else from the water, electricity. It's a pretty simple process. Water enters a pipe just below us and flows downhill, where it spins a turbine and generates power. And right now we'll be putting out somewhere around 3.7 megawatts. It's enough to power about 2,200 homes for a year. And there are plenty more irrigation ditches here to plug turbines into. There are rooftops and vacant land to blanket with solar panels. There's even methane seeping out of a defunct coal mine. It can be turned into electricity, too. DMEA leaders want to tap more of these resources. Here's board president Bill Patterson. As we produce more power locally, that means that the money that is spent for the wholesale power stays local and is not sent out of the area. Sounds simple, right? It's not. It's put DMEA in a legal battle with its current wholesale power provider, Tri-State Generation and Transmission. Joseph Goodman is with the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy think tank. He says that the case could remove a major barrier to small-scale renewable energy in rural areas. DMEA is taking one for the team among the co-op family by bringing this case um, and allowing for all the rest of the co-ops in the nation to bring on renewables, create local jobs, and economic benefit. DMEA is one of 43 rural utilities that buy power from Tri-State. Lee Bowie is Tri-State's communications manager. There's an economy of scale that smaller rural cooperatives get by combining together and forming organizations like Tri-State. Bowie explains that co-ops have contracts where they commit to buying 95% of their power from Tri-State. The co-ops are allowed to generate the other 5% on their own. These agreements are designed to ensure that each member fulfills its individual obligation to pay its fair share. Its share of infrastructure costs, like maintaining power lines or paying off power plants. If one co-op buys less from Tri-State, Bowie says, it may force the others to pay more. 
But Bill Patterson, the DMEA board president, says their members believe local power is key to keeping rates low. We've been trying to negotiate with Tri-State on this without success. So last year, DMEA went to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, to ask if they could buy more than 5% of their power from local sources, despite their contract. FERC said that they could. In fact, a federal law designed to promote small-scale renewables required it to. Tri-State wasn't happy and went back to FERC. It wants to recoup costs by charging co-ops like DMEA for buying more local power. In June, FERC rejected the request. Tri-State is appealing with support from a number of the other co-ops it serves. And the outcome could affect rural utilities nationwide. Tri-State's Lee Bowie. What's happening in Colorado could play out across the country within other cooperatives. The Rocky Mountain Institute estimates that if the nation's rural co-ops were to transition completely to renewable energy, it would create a 200-gigawatt market, the equivalent of at least 100 Hoover dams. That's all theoretical, of course. Still, some locals are nearly giddy at the prospect of independence. Here's how former DMEA board member Ed Marston reacted to FERC's decision. I felt as if I were six years old and I just got a pony. Marston is an advocate for renewable energy and for local economic development. He lives in Delta County, where coal mines have long provided the best-paying jobs. But two of three mines closed recently. We've lost tens of millions of dollars in public tax revenue. A smattering of small-scale power plants could help rebuild the tax base, but they're only a piece of the economic puzzle. They won't bring back the 700-plus jobs lost from the mines. The modern hydro plants on the South Canal, for instance— They're affordable, efficient, and automated. For Inside Energy, I'm Callie Carswell. Those two stories come to us as part of our Inside Energy Collaborative Reporting Project. When we come back, I will get an update on K-12 education from State Superintendent Jillian Balow. We'll also hear about the retooling of a long-abandoned dude ranch in the Grand Teton National Park. This is Open Space. listening to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Over the last several years, we've gotten lots of information concerning testing of students. Some were more positive than others. To get a full assessment of how students are doing this year, we turn to State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Jillian Balow. It's a busy time in education. Next week, an education committee will continue working on such reforms as distance education and how they will assess education in the future. Plus, there is the issue of funding cuts. Superintendent Balo starts by saying that she's mostly pleased with some of the test scores she's seen. What all of the indicators are telling us um, is that we are gradually improving as a state in our education system. Um, our NAEP scores came out better than um, better than we expected and better than the national uh, statistics showed. Our PAS scores were up. Our graduation rates were pretty flat. Um, our uh, school performance ratings were up. 
And so generally all signs are, um, are pointing toward improvement and, um, and, and we like that. And especially when we have a solid foundation from which we're improving. How do you take now the next step? You know, again, there there is not one step that we take. It's a series of steps. Um, we have a new federal law that passed nearly a year ago, and Wyoming has been working hard on um, on utilizing this opportunity that we have to really harness uh, authority over education in our state and um, even down to the local school districts. Uh, we're still learning almost every day uh, about how that can look in states and how that should look in Wyoming. Um, we we have incorporated a, a really broad base of stakeholders to give us information and advice along that. Uh, currently, we're really working on um, accountability and making sure that not only that comports with the new federal law called Every Student Succeeds, but also um, that, that we're growing uh, the accountability system that we put in place, that our legislature put in place to really kind of measure that bang for our buck. Would you explain to listeners, uh, we, we still have a little work to do there, but what the accountability system probably will look like if it, if it goes according to plan is certainly what you'd like to see. Sure. So um, that, that's a that's a really important question, and um, and Wyoming is is very well poised compared to other states. We were one of seven states in the nation that did not take the No Child Left Behind waiver. What that um, either forced or allowed us to do, depending on how you look at it, is to really build our accountability system at the state level and rely on an accountability at the state level versus a national accountability system. So compared to other states or compared to most other states, we're, we're eons ahead in our accountability system. Again, our legislature really focused initially on building an accountability system that measured, are we getting our bang for our buck? Are we getting a good payoff for our investment in education? It's morphed or grown into something much more complex. As we move forward, we're really looking at um, our accountability system to measure and rate schools so that that information is publicly available and also to give schools and school districts some really good measures on how they can um, improve teaching and learning in their school district to really make a difference for individual students. So accountability isn't just looking at test scores. It's not just looking at money or facilities or graduation rates, but it is looking at multiple indicators um, to, just, to just really give us a, a good indication of how well that school stacks up um, against other schools in the state and in the nation. And, um, you know, and, and under the Every Student Succeeds Act, the new federal law, we have an opportunity to focus more on uh, various student groups that will help us to hone our efforts even more on school improvement. So we've moved away from that accountability for compliance that we saw with No Child Left Behind and in the early days of our state accountability system. And now we're really moving toward accountability for responsibility to make sure that all students are successful. And it's a much, much different look at, um, at education. Uh, and, and it's not 
not something that happens overnight. It's something that really grows and evolves and, uh, and takes the input and support of a lot of folks, including our legislature, um, our school districts across the state, of course, my office, and uh, many other entities that support education. Are you getting buy-in from all the school districts? Uh, I do recall last couple of years there's been some thinking by some of the districts out there that really accountability should be done at the local level and not at the state level, and I'm, I'm wondering if any of that has changed. Hey, you know, I haven't. I haven't heard that in a very long time, especially now as we move into a model that becomes more personalized uh, and where support becomes more personalized. I think that there remains a desire for school districts to have a say or have a voice at the table as we grow our accountability system. But I also think that schools um, very, very much understand uh, that, uh, that accountability is important not only only um, in their schools and in their communities, but but it's important um, as as they show off what they can do or as they look for areas that, where they're challenged. Um, perhaps another reason that we're not hearing that rhetoric as much is because as a state, over the course of the last year and a half, we've really focused on building a strong statewide system of support that um, is very responsive to the data that schools produce and um, and. And we hope that it has moved away from a model of one-size-fits-all to really helping schools and school districts discover what their challenges are and meet those head-on, and then we support them in those endeavors. State Superintendent of Public Instruction Jillian Balow visiting with us. So let me talk about one challenge that's sitting out there, and, and it involves money. You saw some budget cuts uh, this year to all of us in the state, but certainly uh, the local districts had to take those with less money coming their way. That might continue. I, I'm curious how you see uh, less dollars impacting education. It is very, very critical and important that we talk about um, our money challenges. Uh, we are facing some significant uh, budgetary challenges, both at the local and the state level. Um, as state superintendent, the agency that I oversee, the Wyoming Department of Education, has seen a budget cut of nearly 15% since the beginning of the year. We've reduced our staff by nearly 10% through attrition, and I don't think those cuts are over. Of course, in school facilities or construction, major maintenance and school construction, um, we don't have a revenue stream for, for major maintenance and school construction after 2019. Um, we also saw with this last legislative session cuts to the school foundation account that directly impact local school districts. So those are, we, we can't talk about the future of education without talking about budget. But what I am most afraid of, and I'll tell you what wakes me up in the middle of the night, is that those conversations are going to overtake all of the great things that we're doing for kids, all of the initiatives that we've begun that aren't aren't dependent on um, on a high price tag. And so um, sort of my, um, I, I guess, I guess my ongoing battle cry, so to speak, is we have to talk about budget, but we have to talk about school improvement, and we have to talk about how we're going to continue to grow and get better. And we can never say, well, those good good old days are gone, and now it's time to, um, you know, to fall into a rut of mediocrity in education, because I truly don't believe that, um, that uh, any 
anyone um, in education or in our communities wants to see that happen, nor do they expect to see that happen. So we have to figure out how to um, how to go around the budgetary challenges without um, cutting critical services to students and without putting um, school improvement and initiatives on the back burner. I always run out of time when I talk to you. Let's uh, schedule a time for next month and we can continue this discussion. State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Jillian Balow, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Really appreciate the time. Turning away from education, in Grand Teton National Park for many years, the White Grass Dude Ranch entertained visitors who came for mountain views and the chance to play cowboy. It closed in 1985, and soon the ranch's cabins and lodge started falling apart after people stopped using them. That's how White Grass joined a backlog of some 27,000 historic properties nationwide that the National Park Service couldn't afford to maintain. But things have changed. Wyoming Public Radio's Rebecca Huntington attended a recent rope cutting to celebrate the ranch's revival. At the event celebrating the complete rehab of 13 rustic cabins at White Grass, Barb Paul of the National Trust for Historic Preservation said she almost couldn't believe the ranch survived. The first time I saw this place, it looked quite different than the way it looks today. And White Grass, along with many other historic structures in the park, had suffered from years of deferred maintenance and was severely deteriorating. In fact, many of you remember, probably felt that it really was too far gone to um, be brought back to this wonderful condition. Paul said efforts to rescue the ranch started 13 years ago. That's when then-Interior Secretary Gail Norton signed an agreement with the trust president, Richard Moe, to rescue the ranch. The Park Service has spent about $2 million, while the trust chipped in another million dollars to restore the cabins. The main lodge and guest cabins sit scattered along the edge of a grassy meadow, where wildlife still freely roam at the foot of the Teton Mountains. Homesteaded in 1913, Whitegrass capitalized on this magnificent setting, switching from raising cattle to entertaining dudes, or those from outside the West, which was more profitable. Catherine Watson is the director of the Western Center for Historic Preservation, now based at Whitegrass. She says it will now be a model training ground, where people can come learn how to do the same kind of restoration for other historic properties throughout the West. And we're really the only center doing this on what we call traditionally built resources. So things like log cabins. Our range is so large, we work from Alaska down to Hawaii. Wood chips fly as volunteer Jack Schinkel uses an ax and chisel to carve a saddle-shaped notch into a log. All of these cabins, well, most all of them used the round notch in the corners, and this is how they made the notches to fit. It's just the kind of skill that will be taught here. Wanson says White Grass's resurrection marks a symbolic shift away from Park Service policies of the 1980s and 90s that favored letting buildings decay to restore natural landscapes. So this has been a total shift in Park Service management, not just in this park, but in a lot of large Western, quote-unquote, natural parks, to really bring cultural resources to an equal footing with the natural resources. Grand Teton National Park Superintendent David Vela agrees. I don't frankly buy the notion that we have historical parks and, just, and natural parks. 
we have resource rich parks that have cultural values and natural values. But he says that doesn't mean you can save every structure. Because we have close to 700 historic assets in the park. And if it were up to me that we would preserve and protect every single one of them, because every one of them has a unique story. But that's not the reality. So the reality is, is we have to look at which assets provide the greatest level and opportunity of preservation and protection, but also that provide a representative sample of the stories. And Whitegrass has plenty of stories. Beth Thomas Wooden first came to Whitegrass as a guest when she was eight years old in 1954. She returned often and eventually went from being a guest to working as a wrangler. Oh, I loved it. That was my life ambition, was to be a wrangler at Whitegrass. <laughs> so. Once she started working summers at the ranch, Wooden invited her childhood friend from Philadelphia, Olivia Meeks, to join her. When Bethy and I came out here, we weren't even in a cabin. We were in a tent up in those woods. In woods. And that was in the day when they, the park didn't really have strong rules about bears and dumps. And so there we were up in that tent, and there, were, there was a dump down there that was frequented by a bear. And we were near the kitchen. Yeah, that was the true. worst. Yeah, the, yeah, so <laughs> the bears would come wild. to the kitchen, and they had to go by our tent to get to the kitchen. Yeah, it was kind of <laughs> wild and woolly. <laughs> Meigs even met her husband here. Just one of the many romances that made white grassers, as they call themselves, fall in love with the place and want to save it. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Rebecca Huntington in Jackson. This week we've been celebrating the 50th anniversary of Wyoming Public Radio, and in that time we've encountered some interesting characters, dignitaries, and just plain interesting folks. One person that qualified for all three of those categories was former Governor Ed Herschler. Herschler was Wyoming's only three-term governor, serving the state from 1975 until 1985. Governor Herschler was a longtime friend of Wyoming Public Radio, and he appeared on this station weeks before he died in 1990. I had a chance to record this speech given by Governor Herschler in Laramie towards the end of his time as governor. Herschler had a commanding presence and had an amazing sense of humor. We played this clip as part of his obituary piece over 25 years ago. I'm reminded of a story that was told to me uh some few years ago, about a pope and an eastern governor who passed away on the same day. And both of these fine gentlemen reached the pearly gates at the same time. And they stood there talking, and uh, they became, uh, they struck up a very quick and fast friendship. And they hoped that their housing assignments in heaven would be close together so that they could commiserate and continue their newfound friendship. And the governor drew the first assignment and was given a spacious condominium with all of the elements of luxury. And the pope, however, was assigned to a small apartment with nothing more than the bare essentials. And the pope, feeling that there must have been some mistake, went back and checked with St. Peter to see whether or not there had, in fact, been an heir. And St. Peter replied that there was no heir. And he said to the Pope, while we've had many a Pope's arrive here as their final destination, this is our first governor. <laughs> and perhaps it's the complexity of our jobs that uh, causes us to be the brunt, I suspect, of many barbed jokes. 
That was former Wyoming Governor Ed Hirschler. When we come back, we'll talk about hunting in bear country and learn about raccoons. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. In the last week, a bow hunter suffered numerous injuries after he was attacked by a bear. Game and fish officials worry about such things at this time of year as more hunting seasons get underway. Tara Hodges from the Cody Game and Fish Office explains that hunters need to be bear aware. Well, this is the time of year when bears become more active in their search for food. Uh, They go into what we call hyperphagia, and that's just an increased uh, ability or looking for food. And that's so the bear can put on weight uh, in preparation for hibernation. So when I'm out hunting and I'm walking around, probably going to be quiet, uh, that seems to probably go in conflict with how to operate in bear country. So hunting in grizzly bear country can really present some unique and challenging experiences for hunters. You know, hunters should really realize that they can be predisposed to sudden encounters and conflicts with bears, Uh, quietly pursuing game in the field, uh, masking human scent, you know, being active during dusk and dawn, uh, moving into the wind. All of those things could potentially increase the probability that you could surprise a bear at close range, and in turn, that bear could behave defensively. You mentioned grizzlies. Do we need to worry about black bears as well? Uh, Black bears and grizzly bears, hunters should be cognizant of both of those species. Uh, However, uh, if you're in northwest Wyoming, you could potentially be in grizzly bear country, and hunters should be certainly cognizant, uh, more cognizant if they're in grizzly bear country. So what should they do? What's what's the best way to operate and still, I guess, uh, find what they're hunting for? So really the proper preparation and really mental preparedness is really the key to reducing the potential for an aggressive uh, encounter with a bear. So uh, while hunting, uh, a couple tips are to always hunt uh, within sight of a partner carrying a bear spray and also being aware and watching for bear signs. So this includes tracks, scats, diggings, uh, anything like that. Being aware of seasonal food sources is also a very good thing to know when you're in bear country. For example, in the late fall, if you're in a a berry patch, for example, be aware that a bear might be foraging uh, on that food. If you come across a carcass, for example, be aware that a bear might potentially be on that carcass. You mentioned carrying bear spray, and if I could just stop there and just talk a little bit about that. I'm sure a lot of hunters say, well, shoot, I have a weapon right here. Why would I need to mess around with bear spray? So bear spray is a proven defense against an aggressive bear encounter. The Game and Fish recommends that uh, anyone recreating in bear country carry bear spray. Um, it's It's a great defense to have in case you do happen to come upon a bear that's acting aggressively. Tara, I remember a conversation we had a while back that uh, not only when you're out hunting should you be aware, but as soon as you get your kill, uh, then you also want to keep your eyes peeled. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So when hunters are in the field, uh, they need to be cognizant of bears while they're hunting. But if a hunter is successful and they do happen to... uh, harvest an animal, 
this is when the hunter should take uh, special precautions. So uh, while field dressing game in the field, uh, hunters should really be aware of a couple things. If they're in bear country, really the best thing to do is to separate the carcass, the quarters, from the gut pile as soon as possible and with as much distance as possible. Now, sometimes this isn't possible at all. So if you have to leave the carcass, for example, for any time, if the hunter comes back to the carcass, taking extreme caution when reapproaching that carcass, looking at that carcass from a distance with binoculars, approaching that carcass uh, from, from upwind would be good. Uh, all of those things can help you prevent a potential conflict with a bear uh, over a carcass. Also, if you do harvest a game animal, if you, the best thing to do is have your hunting partner. You have one person uh, working with the game and one person watching for bear activity. Okay. Anything we forgot to ask you there? You know, I guess I want to say that in most situations, bears will avoid humans. Um, and if you do encounter a bear in the field, uh, you know, these certain these preparations, this mental preparedness, carrying bear spray, all of these things can help you minimize the potential for that aggressive encounter. Tara, always nice chatting with you. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Bob. Those wanting more information about hunting in bear country can go to the Wyoming Game and Fish website. And wrapping up, when you think of raccoons, you may think of cute little creatures or maybe your neighborhood pest. But where do they live? Are they social? How smart are they? The University of Wyoming Raccoon Project is setting out to answer those questions. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard rode along with the team of scientists on one of their recent trapping days. It's a dark and damp Sunday morning in Laramie, and University of Wyoming Raccoon Project team members are climbing out of a big truck on the south end of town. Undergrad Emily Davis speaks into a video camera to document the day's work. It's 5.40 on August 21st, and we're trapping Davis Trap 1. The three women walk up to a fence where a trap is hidden beneath brush and planks. Inside is what they've been hoping for, a big, fat, bandit-eyed raccoon. I don't see any ear tags, which would be obviously an identifiable marker for us that we had caught it before. It's kind of big. He's their first trapped raccoon this morning. And by the time the sun comes up, they will have walked through fields, jumped over creeks, and of course, frequented the library dumpsters to retrieve six trapped raccoons. They will also release accidentally trapped skunks, a mink, and one very unhappy cat. All of this is done in the name of science. The project is looking to reveal more about the nocturnal creatures. Project director Sarah Benson Amram studies animal social behavior and intelligence. I was really intrigued by the possibility of studying raccoons because they're anecdotally thought to be quite clever, but there's actually very little experimental work that's been done on raccoons. So scientifically, we don't actually know that much about their intelligence. Scientists do know raccoons are successful in a lot of habitats. Their range is expanding. They often live in urban areas, and Benson Amram says they tend to be an invasive species. So all of these things point to the fact that they're likely to be potentially quite smart, but we need to really study that to, to know for sure. 
And so in 2015, UW students working on the project began setting up trail cams and capturing raccoons. Lauren Stanton is a Ph.D. student on the project. She says a compelling reason to conduct the project in Laramie is that this population could be particularly interesting. There actually has been some evidence that shows that animals that live in harsher environments as well as um, animals that occupy high elevations actually have advanced cognitive abilities than even members of the same species living at lower elevations or in more mild environments. To test that theory, they need to get their hands on a few of these high-elevation animals first. So once the team has gathered the six trapped raccoons this morning, they take them to the Red Buttes Research Facility a few miles south of town. They bring all the traps inside, and one at a time, they sedate the animals so they can be examined and collared. They start with the first one they trapped that day. Team member Rachel Finelli checks him over for markings and injuries. And then, yeah, the chip on the left and right upper in canine. If we want to take a picture of that. The team weighs the animal, takes some blood, and then Finelli snips off some of his whiskers. So we take whisker samples because um, this allows us to do stable isotope analyses with it and we're able to determine what they're actually eating. And there are other ways to figure out what they're eating too, like fecal samples. This guy's eating some berries. Taking a fecal sample and they're whole berries in the species, so I can feel there's like more inside of there. While the team gets a radio collar ready, some of the other raccoons waiting to be processed start making a fuss. PhD student Lauren Stanton says these raccoons might be stressed. I, mean, I think it's just a little contact call, you know, they're calling out to see where their butts are. Back in the examination room, the raccoon is fitted with a tracking device. One of the reasons they do this is to see which animals can solve puzzle boxes. Puzzle boxes are pretty much what they sound like, a big box with a piece of food inside, and raccoons have to figure out how to get it open. If a previously captured individual solves the box, that information is recorded. Stanton says the young raccoons that are fussing right now have a mom who has solved a puzzle box in her yard, and now she's teaching her kids to solve it too. Mom knows how to do it, at least two of the kids know how to do it, so I want to figure out which ones they are so when they disperse and we run studies in the future, we'll know who are the, the initial problem solvers. To date, the team has captured 68 raccoons and fitted 21 with collars. Stanton says that's a good start. It's very exciting. It's all, you know, this past year has really built up, you know, kind of this foundation about the raccoons in Laramie, and now we're going to start kind of tapping into their, their intelligence and see, you know, what they're capable of. And Stanton says seeing what the animals are capable of also depends on information from the public. Summer trapping may be over, but the team encourages Laramie residents to report raccoon sightings and behavior to the project at wyobio.org. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. To hear the show again or to listen to individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There you can sign up for our weekly podcast or even pitch its ideas for future programs. Anna Rader is our web editor. The Open Spaces team is trying to acquire more poems and essays for our show. If you have some you'd like to submit, contact Wyoming Public Radio News Director Bob Beck. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.